Hello there, and a very good morning to you. And you're very welcome indeed to our programme this morning. Uh, we will start off with uh, the headlines. Uh, the Sunday Times, uh, it's great to see Jonathan Sexton back uh, in form, even if just in a photograph on, on what might be called a more local match. But anyway, it was good to see. Now, the Sunday Times leads with an article by John Mooney, who has an interview with a man who claims he was involved in the intimidation campaign against uh, Quinn Industrial Holdings and more of that anon. And Andrew's Pizza Alibi uh, for sex allegation. That was the interview last night with uh, Prince Andrew about his connection to Mr Epstein. The Sunday Independent... um, leads with Sean Quinn complaint to Vatican about priest plea for protection on false charges. And Sean Quinn wrote to quite a few people uh, in the Vatican complaining about the sermon uh, given in his own local church. Uh, though, as we went, went through it, I don't think he, he was named in any way. But anyway, he's complaining to the, um, to the Vatican about the priest. Uh, the Sunday Business Post, uh, Fine Gael will go to war if uh, Bailey runs as independent. And we then go to the mail. Uh, head of RTE, I'm not going anywhere, an interview with Dee Forbes. Uh, the Mirror uh, has Elisa Smith uh, story saying that there was an application uh, for a late, late interview. The uh, Sunday World, Kinahan Hitman busted, uh, cartels cop top killer even, uh, nabbed with handgun during raid and serial hutch uh, killer snared. That is the Irish Sun. Now, uh, may I introduce our guest to you this morning, uh, Sinead O'Carroll, editor with the journal.ie, Seamus Coffey, chair of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council and economics lecturer in UCC, Alison Cowser, co-former founder even of East Coast Bakehouse, uh, Declan Power, security analyst, and Fergus Finlay, former CEO of Bernardo's. Uh, and you are all very, very welcome indeed. Now we've a lot to get through. Can I start off, Sinead O'Carroll, uh, and can you give us an account of the case you won? Um, well, actually, I didn't win anything. It wasn't my case. It was uh, Ireland's case. It was the state's case um, against a man, Brendan Doolan, who I was, um, I guess they called me the injured party. And actually, when I was booked onto this panel, I didn't realise I'd be in the news this week. Um, I, I hadn't I hadn't quite kind of come to grips with the, the sentencing date. Um, so Brendan Doolan has been um, harassing uh, me and a number of other women, um, manifesting itself um, online in the most part um, since 2012. Um, the state took the case. Um, uh, the Gardaí were fantastic from, from the moment the complaint was made. Uh, the DPP decided to take um, charges for the six um, against that he was harassing six women um, and Judge Martin Nolan adjudicated on it and, and on Thursday sentenced uh, Brendan Doolan to five years with two years suspended. Had you any connection with him prior to that or any of your colleagues? No, um, I, we didn't know who he was when I got the first email from him in uh, 2012. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know who he, who he was until um, Gardaí charged him and I didn't really find out anything about his life until the sentencing hearing on Wednesday. Right. Um, no, we had no connection to him at all except for he continued to um, insert himself into our lives for so long. And and I think this is very interesting that I gather that you thought this is part of the course. Yeah, and that's kind of what I said in my statement. We all, six of us, had obviously a range of experiences. So I don't really want to delve into my own personal because I don't think it's it's as, um, it, it's probably not indicative of how everyone feels in it. But yeah, I just thought it was part of my job. Um, when the Guardian asked um, for my statement, um, I just thought that generally I worked on the internet. I, I was a young woman at the, at the time when it started back in 2012. And yeah, I just really thought it was something that I had to put up with. Um, so I used to spam his email addresses and then you'd get another e- a new email. So you'd, he would set up a new email and, and send stuff from that and then you'd realise it was the same person and you'd spam that and and that would continue, that cycle continued over the years. And he used 
pretty repulsive language. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was, it, there was a kind of full range of, of things. And uh, one of the things I had said in my statement was that it was it was persistent. And that's what Judge Nolan said as well, that there wasn't any one message that made it worse. It was the amount of messages Roe, one of the, the women received up to nine a day. Myself, I would receive up to six a day. Um, and so it was the persistence and the... And yeah, the, now one of the, the things that's it is he wrote to you at some stage and he had figured out that you were going to be speaking at a meeting. Yeah, and and so that was kind of, and that was the one I had mentioned in in my uh, victim impact statement because it was a, a it was a public event. I was um, you know advertised as the MC of the event, and he sent me the details in a, in an email. So he always emailed my um, work email, but he did email the other women on their personal emails as well that he had gotten hold of, and um, he. He didn't say he was going to be there, but when I got there, I wondered, God, he could be here and I don't know who he is. And would he say something to me? Would he do anything? At that stage, we we didn't know anything about him. So that was kind of my, when I realised that actually it's not online harassment, it was harassment, which is um, what the Gardaí had been telling us. And which was the Gardaí were just fantastic the whole way through, explaining to me that it wasn't part of my job. It wasn't, it didn't need to be part of my life and it shouldn't have been. So, and that's what I've been buoyed with by the in the last couple of days, the amount of people who've got in contact and said, that they have gotten comfort with how it was dealt with because they they have something similar happening to them because I think we all know it's not this isn't an individual case that you know this is but something that's quite prevalent. But it would be great prevalent. if it deterred anybody else from that kind of keyboard warrior activity. Is it hard to trace? I sorry, I, I, this is not an area of my expertise. Can they trace these addresses easily? Um, the, well, the cybercrime unit was the was the Garda unit that dealt with it, and from the moment they were involved, um, they were fantastic in that they had said to us, "You were correct to bring it to us." Um, I said in my statement that I kind of thought that some people might think this is harmless. You know, it's online; it's just emails. Like, get over your, yourself or whatever. But. Um, the Gardaí said, no, it's not something, it, this is harassment, it's not something you have to put up with. Um, they wanted to make sure that we were physically safe. So that was their initial yeah. starting point was to make sure we were physically safe um, from whoever this person was. Um, and from there, they dealt with it. So it, again, it kind of became the state's case rather than my case. I get so I'm, you. Not, I'm not quite sure what the technical stuff is, but it was the cybercrime cyber unit and right. they did work incredibly diligently and incredibly hard. Because I, 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 who around here is an absolute expert on computers and computing and communicating, shaking heads <laughs> everywhere. Well, well, I'm not an expert, Marion, but I do know that an IP address can be traced. Well, that's what I thought. So, no, an IP address can definitely be traced and there is technology available to the guards where they can, they can actually see real-time activity on on IP addresses. So uh, they can, for example, if somebody is trying to download pornography yeah. on a website, they can they can track that. Webs, uh, email addresses are a bit more difficult, but they're all traceable. They're all traceable. Yeah, I thought it did come down to IP address because isn't that the algorithm uh, that connects people on, say, things like LinkedIn? Yeah, yes. the interesting thing though too is the IP address. If you're, you don't have to be a genius, but if you just choose to use a computer that can't be directly traced to you, the same concept of a burner mobile phone. So if you're going, if you know, one of the things that has happened is people have been convicted in other jurisdictions where they were using a, a series of internet cafes to carry out activities like what were perpetrated on uh, Sinead and her colleagues. Um, but, you know, people make mistakes. Uh, CCTV can pick up somebody going in and out of one of those locations. But there's an, an additional point that comes out of what was said there that I think is important. And that's a reminder to, to us of the human factor uh, in this. Because while somebody would say, as Sinead mentioned, that, oh, well, maybe that's not too serious because it's online and there's nothing physical. Activities, uh, and, you know, Research has shown in recent times that when you're engaged in those kinds of wanton, abusive activities, uh, you know, behind your keyboard, it desensitizes you, and you're kind of going through a series of gateways that could result in uh, in, in physical uh, violence or, or threats of, Up, of upping that the ante. Yeah, upping mm. the ante step yeah. by step, and people who wouldn't ordinarily uh, think of that get bit by bit they can get desensitized. And if somebody starts a campaign like that, they're already a little bit. 
you know, they're dealing with, I would say, psychological issues. So it's, I think it's been a very right. good day that the state mm. chose to respond the way they did so vigorously and that this guy uh, has had justice dealt out of them appropriately. Right. Mm. Yeah. I think there's, there's, there's some, sorry. Some just one thing that's interesting ahead, about this James. is how little uh, it's been covered in the media. Um, the, the papers today have very little coverage of it. and the Very little, but it's maybe because media and media, if you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, um, so, like, I think it's, uh, as Declan says, very significant uh, that this has been uh, brought through the courts. Uh, there's lots of things in the courts that get widespread coverage, uh, whereas this has got very little. Uh, and I think one thing to note is that uh, the victims of the, of the harassment, uh, many of them did work in the media, uh, and again, all of them were women. Uh, and this is something that should be brought through. I think it is important to see that this has been investigated, charges been brought. Taken seriously. Convictions yeah. and yeah. custodial sentences imposed. Yeah. I think that is very significant. It is worthy of more coverage than it got. Just to, just to add to that, um, your colleague Vivian Trainer did a fantastic job at covering it on RT across um, Thursday Thursday and Friday because it was actually even though it was just a, an, a sentencing hearing there was a lot of complex um, things going on in it and there was also six victims and six victim impact statements and she did a fantastic job of making sure all all of our range of experiences were covered were reflected mm. yeah and, and you said that you didn't feel victim initially no and I think that again is a, a real um, optimistic way of looking at how Ireland did deal with it and how the justice system dealt with it because I really genuinely for a long time like I got my first email from him in 2012 and it's I, a long time it's a long time mm. and I just thought it was part of my job and there was a couple of occasions where things would um, have hit a little bit harder um, like the time he told me to break both legs and that was well covered in, um, in the in the reports this week um, but for a long time I didn't and, and it was the Gardaí kind of reminding me that this wasn't something I had to put up with what, what, why, why do you think it was was it because you were um, involved in sports? Was it because you were involved in journalism? Um, there didn't seem to be a huge amount connecting the six of us bar the fact that we were women. Hmm. I think I think that's exactly you put your finger on a fault line that there are there's a developing shall we say strain of young men who feel disenfranchised who feel a whole variety of things for a variety of reasons and the focus for the rire tend to be young confident articulate women and perhaps there's a lesson for us to take out of that that if these guys you know whatever lack of mentoring lack of guidance right. stewardship shall we say into yeah. manhood is being ignored and they're lashing out at people that they feel are stealing their I don't know their rightful place in society right. that's just a, it's a generalisation I appreciate an um, intervention during the week <clears throat> Bridge Smith the CD um, was asked about this and she's subject to incredible vitriol on, online um, she was asked if it if upset her and she said well no it doesn't upset me because the people who do it are cowards and I'm not upset by cowards and it was a quite a, a strong yeah, well, statement for her good, to make good, um, but still but there, everybody's uh, human you there know? was there was I, did, I heard that on Friday as well and, and there was a problematic element to it and it's something that Declan said there the Gardaí did want to do a risk assessment on this man um, and so it might not be the most helpful advice to say you should yeah, just ignore it. you yeah. should just ignore it if, yeah. if you can't ignore it then that's perfectly okay to feel mm-hmm. like you cannot ignore it No I don't and think she was indicating it as a way of, of it was her way of dealing with yeah. it and right. it's one way of dealing with it from yeah. an individual I, I, I think that's yeah. there's, there's, there's a, a thing coming to fore there as you say there Alison there's protecting yourself psychologically and then taking steps uh, prudent steps to protect yourself physically and, and in every other way. Yeah. And I think it's important that when a person, uh, if they have to go to the Gardaí about some act of, uh, of aggression or violence towards them, whether it's psychological or physical, that they also have a, a suite of tools to uh, protect themselves. You don't have to be uh, thinking of yourself as a victim to bring the Gardaí mm-hmm. into yeah. and it's or, or to go to higher person. authority. If the person is doing it to you, they're likely doing it to somebody else as well. Yeah, Almost yeah by, quite possibly. Did, did he surprise you? What was the profile of the man? Um, he's 37 years old now. I think the reports all um, indicated that he's a recluse. He hasn't left his house. Um, he's only left his house twice in the last 17 years. I hadn't really thought that much of who he was or um, what his life was like. Um I think now, and, and we all said this in a, in a statement, that we really hope that he understands the impact of what he did. Um, I th- he got up into the witness box and said, um, sorry to us all. Um, 
and we really hope that he gets the help and support and the rehabilitation he needs um, over the next couple of years that he doesn't need this I think it was mentioned by his barrister that he felt like this gave him a voice and hopefully he finds something else that gives him a voice and, and not this Right I think there is something that needs to be said about the resilience of Sinead and, and her colleagues uh, in the thing because uh, th- th- it's not easy it's not easy getting that kind of stuff um, I've known people whose mental health has been really damaged mm-hmm. by those kind of campaigns your colleague <coughs> Joe Duffy has been running a series of reports and interviews during the, the last week or so about online activity and the incredible damage it has yeah, caused. Yeah. Um, it, it's a feature of modern life. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, a uh, very, it's a very coarse um, feature. It's, it's, an of, evil, of, it's an um, evil feature of modern life because yeah. of its potential consequences. The number of young people who have you know been destroyed by these kind of uh, thoughtless campaigns which are you know yeah. mean nothing to the people who are conducting yeah. and, them and yeah. I don't think actually people's um, psyches have changed that much if you look at um, no, it's the tools the, that are available it's the tools if you look at the mail that po- mail politicians used to get and it's all in the state papers it'll all just be marked abuse and never shown to the, the politicians and you actually can see that if you go into the National Archives you can see those letters yeah. of abuse that are written they're marked abuse and never shown I'm sure the RT hate mail bag is probably <laughs> the same here So, yeah. and you will just never have seen it and now there's a way to access people's inbox straight away right. and they have yeah. no choice in seeing it so it is the tools rather than people changing yeah. Alison did you um did you hear the uh, report on the radio about the level of abuse that politicians get? Absolutely. Death threats, burned out, absolutely shocking it stuff. It is, it is. And I mean, there's a, there's a piece in, in, the, in the papers today um, uh, asking, you know, with this level of vitriol, why would anybody be a TD? Why would anybody go forward and put their name on a, on a, on a, on a selection uh, yeah. list? Um, I mean, the, the the obvious answer to that is well, well, what do we leave it to then? Do we allow um, do we allow these people to win, uh, or do we actually believe that we want a better society where this type of activity is not normalised? And I think that is the issue now, that the individuals who sit behind the keyboards and 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 uh, pour out this level of vitriol. Uh, the, the power of it from their perspective is around the anonymity and the freedom from consequences, really. And I think that Sinead's case, or the case that was brought um, last week, um, should take away those two very powerful attributes if, if, of, of anonymity and freedom from consequence. And if they were gone, I think there would be a lot less of individuals feeling they would take a chance uh, that they would be able to do this with, with no consequences whatsoever. Yeah, well, the other you... thing that, that, that I think the whole social media piece brings is, is you know, I suppose it's, it's, it's different to the anonymity piece, but the audience. So there are individuals who do pour out absolute vitriol under their own names uh, because they have an audience for it. Now, these used to be the guys in the pub that sat on the stool and, and had a bad word to say about everybody. And their audience decreased as people got fed up listening to them. Social media <laughs> gives them the opportunity yeah, yeah. to find a new audience yeah. every mm. day, every you week, every you post. You can't cross the street to the other side when you see Correct. this crowd coming um, because they're coming on your yeah, Facebook page. And it also gives individuals um, who maybe are, are, are difficult, uh, you know, find it difficult socially, uh, the feeling of a pack mentality of being part of something. So they latch onto yeah. an, a, a movement, an idea, a, a particular issue, gather people around them. Uh, it, it gathers a pace and suddenly it's, it becomes news. Right. And, and that yeah. gives them a reason to be. And I think that's a, a real simple challenge. reform. And it has nothing to do with censorship, freedom of speech or anything like that. A very simple reform would be to legislate to allow nobody to post on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram except in their own name. That would be a very simple reform. Talk to Mark Zuckerberg about that one. Yeah. And it would need and to be international. It would need to be international. Of that's course, the, that's of course. The thing. But the, I agree. Well, I don't know I, why it's never been put to them. Well, I agree. Well, there are other things that have been put for, to them and they have dodged away from it. I think the platform operators, they don't like to call themselves publishers, are morally as well as um, physically culpable of, of letting some of this happen. But, and and the, the, it is yet to be seen how to find a way to, to, to bring them to, right. to, mm-hmm. to book about it. Yeah. But there's another issue that I just want to throw in or another element to it. And Fergus, you mentioned the word resilience. <clears throat> Sometimes we forget a lot of the people who engage in this kind of behaviour, they're coming to it from a position of weakness themselves. 
you know, believe it or not. They, they, they're, they're insecure about something. They're insecure about uh, young articulate women. But or you, they're insecure yeah, about some act of, of politics. And what I'm saying is, as a society, we need to be thinking on a broader basis. What the vitriol that they're expressing and then getting an audience for is buying them up. It's filling some sort of a gap in their in their system. So as a society, we need to be thinking about how to try and prevent people going down that route. But we how to seem make them to more have resilient. gone down a track where there has to be outrage about everything, about two flies going up a wall or two flies coming down a wall and people explode yeah. with... Yeah, and Eilish, Eilish Allen um, describes it today in her, her, as I mentioned her article, who would want to be a TD in this age of competitive outrage? Yeah. It's competitive outrage There is a headline in now. one of today's right. papers which I should bring to your attention. I think it's in the mail. It makes me wonder why I don't read the mail every day. Um, there's outrage apparently because somebody has suggested that we should eat avocados instead of cheese. And it has prompted <laughs> universal outrage. Um, <laughs> can we not eat both, no? <laughs> Take out the keyboard there. <laughs> do you get much? Yes, yes, I do. I, I, um, uh, I, it depends, really. I mean, I write a column in the Irish Examiner every week and I put it on Facebook and I put it on Twitter and I get a lot of reaction. I wrote one last week about uh, defence of public service broadcasting I think I would have got about 500 comments. About 80 of them were really abusive, really abusive. One or two of the, I'm blocking that right now, kind of yeah. uh, abuse. A lot were supportive, but uh, some were quite angry. But you, you get about 70, but maybe 20% of everything you write about attracts ferocious abuse. Well, but was it and abuse about, about the content or about you? No, about half of it then goes on to be abusive about me, um, which I, I find impossible to understand. But there you are. I mean, I think I said before on this show, I first discovered I was fat on Facebook um, <laughs> and, and ugly. And uh, last week I was accused, I wrote a piece about immigration a couple of weeks ago, and I was accused of living uh, at the far end of a long gravel drive behind electric gates. And it was easy for me to say um, like people seem to just go mad when yeah. they have a keyboard in front of them um, and say the first thing that comes into their head without any thought of how it might be received. Right. And when they when can't formulate so a good argument, Fergus, when they can't formulate a proper argument or, or cohesive thoughts, then they'll just go for you personally because that's the, the easy thing. And unfortunately, we've, we kind of need to develop, I suppose, a, a, a social language or etiquette. You know, there's a kind of an etiquette when you get into a debate uh, you're one to one but we haven't really evolved you can that. challenge people on ideas yeah exactly. mm, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with that and you can nothing have a fairly that. robust and I, I enjoyed that on Facebook and yeah. Twitter I really loved that bit of Facebook and Twitter um, mind you I'm, I'm involved in an argument my little argument with David Quinn on Twitter at the moment uh, and it obviously is annoying him because he's now suggested I should mute him <laughs> if I don't like his views I should mute, mute him so I it's not that I don't like his views. I just disagree with his views. You're well, entitled to do that. Yep, and as he is, and with he's you. entitled to express them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. You haven't called each other fat yet, though. Seamus, <laughs> <laughs> in your world, it, does this arise? Not particularly. No. No. Um, I, I don't engage. I, on I Facebook. did write dogs abuse about him in his own argument, and he was very polite about it. <laughs> yeah, so, on occasion, with the fiscal council, you, you, you would get traditional articles written criticising the the views that we might be expressing and the approaches we take. Um, and that's all perfectly right. uh, legitimate. But in terms of online, no, it's not something I've hugely experience of. Right. Well, aren't you, aren't you lucky? I think that's the big difference with what the politicians were talking about during the week or what Sean O'Rourke's show was doing, was trying to highlight the difference between having robust debate about um, policies. And I think that's probably some of an education piece as well, that instead of people being able to actually look at the policies and what's actually going right or wrong for them in their lives because of what politicians are deciding. And then it's straight to things like you're overpaid yeah. or you're corrupt or... Yeah, or you're all or, telling lies. Or you're all telling lies. Yeah. So I think there is an education piece there of how people can actually advocate for themselves so that it doesn't reach that level of, of anger and vitriol. OK, now speaking of outrage and, and consequences, uh, Maria Bailey... Uh, finally, she's well. I just I read out uh, Fine Gael quote will go to war if she runs as an independent. What did you think of that whole story? Yeah, and, and obviously she was in, on the front of the um, Independent yesterday as well. I do. Neve Horan has a piece in the the Sunday Independent today about you know it's time to to stop bullying Maria Bailey. I do feel Fine Gael did her a disservice by not getting 
rid of this in July. They had the review in July. They should have decided then if she was going to be able to run as a candidate. I think everybody who has any political ability to read politics knows that she wasn't going to be able to stand as a candidate in the next general election. They should have been done with it then. There shouldn't have been front page stories available to newspapers about Maria Bailey from that point on. And instead, we're in a situation where even after the decision is now made, there have been two weekend front pages about her. And that's that's really the fault of, of Fine Gael mismanaging this completely. Obviously, it's the fault of Maria Bailey's mistake in the first place, but mistakes shouldn't continue to, to garner front page. But, but I also think she needed throughout this piece, an honest friend who would tell her that her political career was irreparably damaged. I mean, she should have stood down. She should have said, look, I made a mistake. I'm I'm not going to trouble Fine Gael or the electorate. And it was a career ending mistake. I'm going to rebuild my career on the ground instead. Yeah. Um, Declan? Yeah, what strikes me uh, in line with the other two speakers there is that Fine Gael's reaction was was based on political strategy rather than anything personal. Uh, And it was the wrong time, the wrong way. And now they're compounding it. They're doubling down it in a way in saying that they're going to go to war. There is probably a significant chunk of people in that constituency who would be thinking, well, if she runs, I will vote for her now just purely to give the two fingers. Uh, And and she would get a certain sympathy vote. She probably wouldn't get elected, but she she could uh, stymie Fina Gale's yeah. uh, objectives. If, if, if it had been a bloke that had well, done that. Well, can I just that. intervene there? Um, there's a piece in today's um, Mail on Sunday, uh, an article uh, indicating that uh, similar circumstances, Alan Farrell TD, uh, withdrew uh, insurance an insurance claim. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't really hear about that. Um, there was very little mm. uh, discussed about that. That's and right. It I, wasn't have, front I have page the outline of it but here. I, yeah. that, but he didn't, you see, I think what really went badly for Maria Bailey was not so much just what she did, which was uh, similar, but how she responded to it. And uh, to go back to Fergus's point, if she had a close friend who could have given her some uh, insight and context, and particularly the interview if, she did with Sean O'Rourke was a disaster. And said, look, Hands you up. know, yeah. hands, I, I, you know, I should, I'm going to withdraw the case. Yeah. It was a mistake, a misjudgment, etc., etc. It would have been a day and a half's embarrassment, exactly. and it'd be over now, and she'd be running for Fine Gael in the constituency. Um, it, the the real damage she did to herself was that interview, where she played a victim from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, in circumstances where there was no possibility of presenting herself as a victim, none whatsoever. Right. Okay. I think for our politicians, it maybe shows what we consider to be career ending. So this clearly has taken her off the ticket. I don't know how usual it is for a, a sitting TD uh, to seek re-election and not get put on, on the election ticket, not have the electorate make that decision. But in this instance, we have uh, an issue in relation to uh, an insurance claim. Would it be career-ending for a teacher or a truck driver? Uh, but it seems to be career-ending for a TD. Politicians make lots of mistakes. Seems a bit odd that this they, is the uh, one that a career I, would end I, on. It was also, though, a question of timing. Yeah, yeah this yeah. was it was a perfect If form. you take what was happening and day in, day out, we were hearing from people whose businesses were closing down because yeah. they couldn't afford insurance. And then you have the politicians saying, we're going to have to clean up this, clean up that. In that context, it, it could appear to be Awfully poor And judgment. it also happened in the middle of a local election where uh, Fine Gael candidates in particular were being run from the doorsteps over Maria Bailey. They, you know, came up again and again and again. Right. And there was the elements of it. And I think this is where the Alan Farrell case differs as well, is there was there were very st- strange elements to it. There was a swing in a in a swanky hotel in Dublin. So there there were just some headlines that wrote themselves. Yeah. Um but just to, to finish on Neve Horan's point, oh, there, yes, were, yeah. there were some tweets that she highlighted about. So her point is that some of it has gone into um, bullying Maria Bailey, that some of the, the mocking of her and the relentlessness of it um, has gone in. You know, you were the gift that keeps on giving, tweeted one woman, another female poster spat. Don't let that swing hit you on the on the way out, Maria. And then a, a another curse word. So there, there is stuff that she is dealing with that is kind of beyond the pale, yeah. even though you do have to say, absolutely, it was a mistake. It probably was a career ending mistake. Um, but at this stage, well, let it go. Let it go. And, and I, we shouldn't, I, we shouldn't forget that the woman lost her father. I was this just year going as well. to say that. And I mean, a little bit of human compassion. She screwed up and I agree it was a career ending screw up and you have to take but the compassion does not exist on social media for it to look at. I mean, it, we've lost that ability to empathise with people in whatever and situation that will spill it into is. normal absolutely. every day. It will be normalised. Well. Okay. Well, somebody else who was taking the heat was uh, Lorraine Clifford Lee. 
Sunday Times uh, History Holland's Clifford Lee campaign. That was by uh, Stephen O'Brien. Seamus, you had a glance at that. Yeah, so I think he's just suggesting that the, her opponents obviously are looking to, to make hay while uh, the Lorraine Clifford Lee campaign seems to be um, hold below the waterline. And again, maybe it goes back to, to social media and think about the, the internet never forgets. Uh, but surely if you're... That's a, such a crucial thing yeah. to say. Like, it's so obvious, but it, they never, it never does. Um, like, so she was, at the time these strange posts were going up, she was a pretty senior member within the, the Fianna Fáil organisation and now she's obviously standing for election. Um, and surely one of the first things you do is to see if there are any issues like that yourself. Mm. Now, <coughs> people might still be able to find it, but you don't make it easy for them. So, like, deleting what you've done that's can questionable. You, I, you, you can. You can, absolutely. Well, it should be an automatic. I don't, I'm still absolutely baffled that it's not an automatic process when a, a party is deciding a candidate that mm. they don't. But it's across every scroll. aspect. I mean, we we see employers trawling through social media feeds from potential candidates for, for jobs. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, it just hasn't hit home that the indelible nature of anything you put online ever, ever, ever. We say it to our kids, I but I don't somebody, think we realise it ourselves. True. But who does a lot of hiring in the tech world and does a lot of hiring and say, unbelievable. He said it would take him about 30 seconds to get into yeah. anybody's but system. We're, we're, making the, we're making the error again in terms of because there's that technical capacity to do so, we're looking for a technical response or a technical defence. Whereas if you go back to the point of looking at the human factor, we're always going to have a weakness where humans are involved. So you're a politician or you're within a political structure, you're going to run and there should nearly be a, a, a strategy or a... Or a, a an operational reality that, okay, you're going to run. What are your weak points? What may you have tweeted about or focused on? We can't eradicate them all, but we need to get a, You need to take ownership of it. Like, what if she had made a statement at some point in a relevant context where I myself have been subject, have, have made gaffes and errors and I've used words that I regret now. If she had worked that into the system, if you're self-aware and situationally aware, yeah. you, pr- you can protect yourself in your organisation far more effectively than wanting to delete everything. But the the only difference is that there's far more opportunity to screw up now yes. because of social media. I mean, it was always a rule. I think it was always a rule in politics and public life that if there's a thing you didn't want to be caught doing, yeah, don't do it. You know, if there's a thing you're likely to be ashamed of when it appears in the yeah. paper, don't do it in the first place. Or if you um, have, then own it. And, and, and if you're caught, I mean, this goes back to Nixon and you're way back beyond that. If you're caught, admit it. Tell the truth. Do you know, it's the cover-up that... I presume panic sets in. I don't know. I mean, I I presume even, if you go back to Maria Bailey and the interview with Sean, it was probably a tsunami of pressure that she hadn't expected... You well, know, and, and she was responding on a personal basis, she was, she, which yes. requires she you was wrong. She you, could you, see that you could feel the rawness in and, the room. Yeah, and Lorraine Clifford Lee did that initially as well with yeah. these tweets saying it was taken out of context. You know, there's a campaign, a smear campaign against me. Now she was completely different on Friday morning, on morning early. She, she was, I, I, but Seamus is right though. I mean, she, her, like her apology was wholesome, wholesome and wholehearted and all that, but it was a little artful as well. Mm. I mean, three times in the course of her interview, she said. I wasn't involved in electoral politics at the time. Mm-hmm. And and that was a key learned distinction. She was quoting something that somebody yeah, said. She did to go to an, an she was involved point. in politics. She did go she to did. point and they she were, 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 they uh, were very generous in their mm. in their uh, account of that meeting. And, and, you know, I suppose it brings us to the point at what point in all of our existences, how far do we go back and say, do you know something? I used to think that before. I don't yeah. think yeah. that anymore. Am I allowed to make that transition? Am I allowed to evolve as an individual? I think that is the key thing because uh, she did think these things mm-hmm. before. She did think it was OK to use these words. Yeah. So it's not just that she got caught... Using them, she thought it she was did, okay but to use them. And I'm not being specific to this case, but in general, is an individual responding. allowed evolve yeah. at any point? Yeah. Or something that and you said when you were 20, does that follow you to your 90? And well, in the age of social media, because it's there, yes, there is a possibility that it will. But as individuals, how do we address that? George W. Bush, who's always underestimated, um, dealt with an awful lot of stuff from his past with one famous line in an interview. Said when I was young and irresponsible, I did things that were young and irresponsible. Sorry about that. And and with yeah. that, he cleaned up a yeah. whole twenty-year period of binge drinking and drug taking and irresponsible behaviour, and put it all behind him. 
There you go. Well, because we've been talking about uh, Lorraine Clifford uh, Lee and she is a candidate, uh, I have to run through the, <coughs> excuse me please, the names of the other candidates <coughs> in the by-election in Fingal. Uh, Glenn Brady, Independent, Tracy Carey, Social Democrats, Senator Lorraine Clifford-Lee, Fianna Fáil, Councillor Anne Graves, Sinn Féin, Charlie Keddy, Independent, Cormac McKay, Independent, Councillor Dean Mulligan, Independence for Change, Councillor Joe O'Brien, Green Party, Gemma O'Doherty, Independent, Pather O'Kelly, Non-Party, Senator James Riley, uh, Fine Gael and Councillor Duncan Smith. And the last individual... He's Labour. Duncan Smith is Labour. Labour. What did I say? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I have a vested interest. Not that you're a biased. You'll probably have to mention way. them all again. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Listen, we'll go on to um, Noel Graylish and... I want to go to you first on this, Seamus. I listened to Noel Graylish's question in the Dáil and I listened to the Taoiseach's response to it in the Dáil and the one thing that struck me as odd, well, lots of things struck me uh, on this, was why is there such a difference in the figures between the World Bank and the statistics office here? Yeah, so a huge difference between them. Uh, I think you're talking about a difference that could be of a scale of 80. So the CSO of a figure of around uh, 20 million a year, I think that the World Bank figure is hugely in excess of that. Uh, the figure quoted by Deputy Grealish would be a cumulative number over a number of years. Uh, but there's a massive difference between them. Uh, I think the World Bank themselves have said that their figures uh, are subject to a lot of, of issues and concerns that they don't view them as being wholly reliable. Uh, they're probably based on a large amount of inflows into Nigeria that aren't necessarily due just to remittances of, of workers, that there's some, there could be corporate and other flows involved. And plus then... Irish aid. Could yes, be in the- and then it's how they allocate it to countries. Uh, so they try to guess the, the spread of the population around the world and then look at the possible incomes that might be earned in those countries. Uh, right. From an Irish perspective, the figure they use to estimate our income is our gross domestic product, uh, which is well understood in Ireland to be hugely distorted by the presence of multinationals and is far in excess of what our actual income is. Uh, so their figure is subject to a lot of uncertainty and not very reliable. Uh, and I suppose the issue would be that the CSO figure was also provided uh, to Deputy Grealish and while we're not saying the CSO figure is entirely accurate, they at least would view this thing from a perspective of the overall level of economic activity in Ireland. They can find holes uh, in relation to the income and flows in Ireland. So looking at the total amount of earnings, the total amount of spending, and then they can see, well, how much money could be flowing out of the country and then maybe allocate that to different countries. So I think the CSO have a much broader perspective. Their figure is likely to be much more accurate. And that's a figure of 17 million per year in terms of worker remittances. Uh, back to uh, Nigeria and of the, the countries they analyse like Poland and other Eastern European countries with a far higher figures I would have uh, of money so, flowing yes. out of Ireland. Yeah. And these flows are perfectly legitimate. Well, you see, when you use the word flow, it kind of vaguely sounds dodgy as opposed to the money is spent or contributed or, you know, it's like the language can make it sound kind of cr- dodgy. Yeah. To a certain extent, maybe yes, but, but money flows are something that <laughs> happens right around the economy. Yeah. And yes, there are illegal money flows, um, but there's no suggestion here of any illegality. Uh, and money flowing from one country to another is something we have a long history of in Ireland. I think yeah. the Taoiseach himself brought it up almost immediately uh, in response to, to the initial query uh, that for many years uh, you had Irish immigrants abroad sending money back Absolutely. to Ireland. Absolutely, um, yeah. And it's something like people sending money to Ireland is something we do at a, a grand scale in terms of companies, their investment here, uh, the tax they pay here. And the fact that workers in Ireland might be sending money back to their impoverished families abroad is something to be welcomed. It's actually improving their living standards yeah. and that we're offering these opportunities and they can avail of them. Uh, and regardless of the scale of the figures, I don't think it's a concern. Uh, I do think there's a concern in terms of how these figures were presented. And I think there was a uh, an attempt uh, to perhaps overstate or mislead in terms of the figures because there was no way uh, that this, the World Bank figures would be reflective of what's happening in Ireland. Yeah, I, why, why and would and you, the World we, Bank itself caveats its figures. It's not like the yeah. World Bank 
puts these figures out and says these are the correct figures. There is a massive amount of caveats with those figures and they would have had to have been compiled in some way. They don't compile them in the way that Noel Grealish stated them in the question. It's the fact of of isolating Nigeria. Now, I suppose we've all got letters at some stage from Nigeria asking us for bank account details. That's because they want to send us money. (laughs) (laughs) Not because they're looking for our money. But there's some interesting statistics uh, in, in the papers today around the whole remittance. One in nine of the world's population receive remittances. I mean, that's a staggering figure. Yeah. And to to, uh, to take out one particular country and to take out numbers yeah. that actually don't stand up in terms of factually is a you, very dangerous thing to do. If you take the CSO figures as the accurate figures yeah. and the number of Nigerians who are living and working in Ireland at about 10,000, which is what it is, um, that represents an, a, a weekly remittance home of about 26 euro per Nigerian person living and working in Ireland. Not a lot, is it? Yeah. It's not a huge amount of money. Well, and, and to distort it in the way it was distorted is shameful. We had three guests in here yesterday morning, uh, one of them being uh, a young Nigerian. Well, actually, he's a young Irish person. But anyway, very hurt. Mm. You know, people yeah. are just yeah. very, very hurt. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Joseph, who's uh, a Nigerian um, academic in UCD, she spoke about it during the week on the radio very powerfully. And, and really what she said is what we're being asked to suggest that for here is for black money to be policed differently to yeah. white money. Yeah. She said it mm. very, very blatantly, tough, but it? it's true. But you know, that there was a backdrop, if you think, when, when uh, migration, when Nigerian migration became a thing. Uh, there was a huge amount of stories across media of Nigerian con artists and you know, Nigerians going through the course that created a bit of a platform that uh, some people would be viewing this against. And we never put it fully in context. Uh, you know, the thing about it is Africa in general, there's a huge amount of uh, corruption in regimes. And if you were a young, clever, up and coming Nigerian person trying to uh, make something of yourself, you couldn't avoid that. And there was a period of when some of them came to Ireland that they... We're looking at the Irish landscape the way they looked at the official landscape in Nigeria. Now, that has changed considerably. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, to, to look in it broader, most, most of the African migration has been Nigerian. They've settled in. They've made remarkably good contributions. Yeah. Now, you're seeing them in public life, sporting life, across the board. And you have to ask yourself, like, when somebody wants to make a comment uh, that they feel uh, is important, would they not be doing it from a positive point of view? Because when you single out one group, whether it's Polish, whether it's Nigerians or whatever else, you're more or less trying to just say that there's something nefarious going on there. And yeah, if people but work- I wonder, are we going in a direction that we should analyse before we get there, so to speak? Which is, you know, there there are people who take extreme views and who don't want foreigners and don't want people of different coloured skin about the place. There are people who would say, welcome one, welcome on, you you know, we're all part of the one family. And there might be a broad space in the middle. Now, I know there is no middle space when it comes to racism, but Anonise, look at those demonstrations that we've had around the country and are we going to end up with polarised stuff Well, Brendan O'Connor addresses this in today's Sunday Independent and and his headline is Noel Grealish did us all a favour because he's brought something to the fore that needs communication, needs discussion and needs reasonable argument as opposed to both ends shouting from the margins and the thing becomes incredibly polarised. So I think there's something in that. I think if we look at how nationalistic um, and, and you know all that we've seen across the world in terms of right-wing um, yes. organisations have developed. They've tended to develop because the people who had these views were completely ignored at the beginning and then these movements grew, uh, latched onto other grievances and then suddenly everyone looks back and say, how the heck did that happen? Well, that's what and, I was kind yeah, of raising. And, and, you know? and Leo Varadkar did and, and Brendan O'Connor gets into this in his piece, for him to have reacted in the tone he did with the, in the manner he did. The, measured. The, it was extremely measured, his tone, but also the... This is Mr. Varadkar's. Yeah. yeah. When he responded in leaders' questions, in leaders' questions, he had no knowledge of the question that was going to come to him. He also couldn't fact check the figures on the fly. So he had to take it in good faith that Noel Grealish's figures were correct and that they had come from the World Bank. And he did respond not in in an aggressive way, questioning why Noel Grealish was asking this. But I think it was the it was the perfect answer, thinking on your feet. And um, Brendan O'Connor says that, but he also goes into we now need to call out ugly when it's ugly. And that question 
is a part of of an ugliness that is facing us. And one of my questions, and, and I think it's irresponsible of Noel Grealish to have gone to ground since, he won't answer questions like, who compiled those figures for you? Did you sit down? You would have had to get each data set from the World Bank downloaded. We did it this mm. week in the Journal for our fact check. Would he have downloaded each and every Excel sheet, <laughs> added up the eight years that he added up, or did someone do it for him? If it was someone, who was it? We know that there are people in an alt-right faction or anti-immigrant faction being bussed around to certain areas and they're getting short thrift in some like Carrick Macross right. my, my mm. colleague was up in Carrick Macross where they got very short thrift but they are getting a foothold in other places so we need to and know the, who these the people are getting, and who the they are using The reason they're using. getting a foothold in some respects is because we're not managing this right yeah, yeah. There isn't adequate communication It's all being done in secret It's it's all oh, being oh, presented oh. as a kind of fait accompli yeah. to communities I'm still at a complete loss to understand uh, and I, I think my record on immigration is okay. I'm still at a complete loss to understand why somebody thought it was a good idea to send 13 vulnerable women to spend their winter in one of the most isolated parts of the country. Um, like in terms of their, I don't know what the vulnerability was, right. but in terms of their vulnerability, okay. where were the supports going Okay, to be? listen, I'm going to have to take a, a break. Uh, with us in studio this morning, Sinead O'Carroll, Seamus Coffey, uh, Alison Couser, Declan Parr at Fergus Finlay back after this. Welcome back to the programme. Now, um, we are moving on to that subject that we discussed an awful lot about um, 10, 12 years ago, and that is banking, uh, when people, many people were brought to their knees by all uh, that had gone before. And there were some very strange uh, remarks made this week. Gulf grows between bankers and regulators on issue of culture is how Richard Curran uh, is describing it today. Uh, And there's also talk about we need a new plan. The EBAS is investigating overcharging on home loans. Um, Please, could you explain uh, this to me, Seamus Coffey? I mean, that man saying that we must turn the way. I just want to add to my question. We quite separately had two individuals here who got absolutely walloped during the recession by the recession and because of the recession. And I was talking to one of them and he's recovered and all of that. And he said, it was stressful. Yeah, it was very stressful. But he said he keeps on thinking of the people he knows and knew who committed suicide. I mean, the pressure and stress that has been experienced by Irish people of no means and major means that's now gone is... I can't. I can't believe the man would dismiss it. I can't believe it. So you, you call these comments strange? I wouldn't call them strange at all. I think they're an insight into the way uh, the executives at, at the high levels of banks think. Uh, <laughs> now, this man probably has little um, exposure to Ireland. Uh, he's the head of KBC. He's a, a Dutch man who works for a, a Belgian bank, uh, and he was on a call dealing with their, their quarterly results. But he knew these comments would be made public. Um, these organisations put the calls, the, the recording of the calls online so people can hear it and plus there was journalists on the call uh, that were likely to report on it. And I think it does show, as Richard Curran says, sort of the conflict between uh, the banks themselves and the regulator. Uh, and I think it just highlights how important regulation is. Sure One does. of the issues that, that came up prior to 2008 uh, was the impact of the lack of regulation, the fact that it wasn't oversight of the, banking, the banks and their activities uh, and the fact that they much of the, the seeds of the, the problems that were caused were done in 2004, 5, 6. Yes, it all came to a head uh, in 2009 and 10. And I think regulation should be uh, restrictive. It should be looking at the activities. And if needs be, it should be invasive. Uh, that if the, the central bank needs to go in and look at individual cases, particularly in relation to the tracker mortgage case, uh, which was the source of the comments here, yes. uh, the central bank should be doing that. And it shouldn't be turning over the page and let's start doing business again. We saw exactly what happened when the, when the banks did business before. And we should have this regulation, the central bank should be continuing to do what it's doing and probably even doing even more so. Alison? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's it's 
I, I think it's unbelievable that what he said, firstly, um, that uh, he knew it was going to be public and it was going to be published. I mean, you know, what does that say, as you say, to all the individuals have, have gone through um, absolute destitution, really, following... Oh, following yeah. Rank. And um, stress. And, I don't know. Yeah, a, and a psychiatrist's yeah, bag just, of it's stress. It's dismissed as being something that really, can we just move on? Um, so uh, I think what it brings to the fore, really, is is this, this issue of both governance and culture. So if, if we consider corporate governance and the fact of doing the right thing, yeah. following the regulations... Uh, that whole area now is moving as much towards the soft aspects of culture and belief and values as it is about the regu- regulation piece that Seamus has mentioned. Um, recently, the Irish Banking Culture Board has been set up and that is a, an organisation whose mission is to make banking in Ireland trustworthy again. Well, now they have a big job on their hands at the <laughs> moment um, if we're to consider what bankers are actually saying in public, not to mind what's being said in private. I mean, what is being said in meetings where there's closed doors. So I think the real issue here is um, the banks have an enormous job to build that trust. I, I You know, all of the, the advertising we hear on the radio backing brave um, whatever the latest one is begin. it's very begin, begin is the latest yeah. it's a, it's very difficult to have anything but cynicism when one hears that um, and and I think you know the fact is we still need a functioning bank system we need to be able to believe in the banking system that we've got because yeah. it serves the country and it serves individuals in a really important way but as you mentioned we're now 10 12 years down the road and and I don't see that there's a lot of progress on that area. You wanted to come back yeah, just in on, on the tracker issue, uh, like with big issues in Ireland in terms of the cost of bailing out the, the Irish owned and the Irish headquartered banks, uh, the Anglo-Irish and the AIB, etc. Like KBC uh, and other foreign banks operating in Ireland weren't part of our bailout, but yes, their own governments had to step in and provide them support. Bank of Scotland. Yeah, but when yeah. it comes to the tracker mortgage issue, is that all the banks did it. Mm. Uh, it wasn't just a case of some banks selecting this activity to undertake that customers who had fixed their interest rates for a period of time and then thought they were entitled to go back onto their tracker rate subsequent to that fixed period ending. All the banks took efforts not to put people back on their tracker rates. It wasn't just the Irish banks, it wasn't just the international banks, it was right across. So this issue of culture is very much prevalent when it comes to banks that, I don't know whether collectively or individually, they all decided to do this. Yeah, and people lost their homes. And I think that's Ailish Hanlon has a really good piece about how sometimes it's difficult for the top ranking people to actually understand what's happening on the ground. But this was top down. So people who were, there was one woman who talked to a committee who said I went into a legal meeting, your man swaggered in with a cup of coffee and told me to stop writing letters. So, you know, that was the people that right. are actually dealing with the people. They know their stories. So it's top okay. down. Okay. And there's also talk about uh, the interest rates that are being charged on mortgages here and more and more and more. But I have to take a break. Podcast the Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. I'm not sure if I had to take a break. Uh, now, no, I don't. Now, one other person that we didn't address that we wanted to address this morning, uh, and I might go to you, Declan, on this, uh, is Lisa Smith. And it is alleged <coughs> that she may very well be home by. Tuesday. Now, I'm not sure if that is true. And I was listening to journalists that has written so much about her and met her and all that. And apparently this will be decided not by our government, really, but by the Turkish government. Um, And there are few articles today, not as many as I expected, uh, but that it's pretty likely that she's not coming home to a party. That's a question, not a statement. No, uh, it depends on your definition of a party. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, the reason that there are few articles about it is there's a dearth of hard information about this. And the Turks have, uh, they control all the cards in this game at this point in time. Mm. Um, which I'd say the various people within the departments of uh, foreign affairs, justice and defence are all happy about. Um I don't know. Is it a case that she's going to be home next week? I suspect it could be a little bit longer with okay. regards to officialdom. Yeah. But the point is, yeah, the Turks would be flying her home and she'll be Can met. I ask you a grubby little question yeah, here? Yeah. Who pays for this? Uh, and it, well, it's a form of deportation. Um, oh, right. So, so then dem- the Turks will pay for well, it. Well, I, I, actually, I'm not 100% sure. wouldn't surprise me if the EU ended up paying for it uh, or indeed the Irish state ends up getting, getting a bill at some point. But 
the the key thing here is uh, to go back to your point what Sorry, happens yeah. to her um, I would imagine she would be met uh, by members of Angarda Siakana and she'd be arrested and uh, taken away for a mixture of things uh, you know a, an interview as as in the case if somebody is accused <coughs> of a crime yeah. uh, uh, interrogation of some sort and indeed I would say some sort of uh, both medical uh, physical medical and uh, psychiatric assessment as well there'd be a variety of things at play and the state have had a number of, of you know weeks now to get their ducks in a row and even longer than that as regards what they're going to do. The key question will be uh, what should be charged with and uh, the, the due process that takes place after that. Right. Uh, Have we enough legislation to cover this? <clears throat> well, I'm not a lawyer, but... Or appropriate uh, legislation, I suppose I should say. Well, if it com- let me put it to you this way. If it comes to pass that we didn't, serious questions will have to be answered with regards to uh, why we didn't, why the, the body politic didn't make any amendments. Now, between the, uh, the, the, the inst- legal instruments that exist, or broadly speaking, under the Offences Against the State Act, I would argue we, we do. Uh, and I would argue that there is a significant amount of evidence right. appropriate to uh, to what Lisa Smith is alleged to have done. And I think we have to keep it in perspective. And this is where things can get a little bit maybe out of control. The pendulum swings from one extreme to the other. From one end of the argument, people saying we should be showing compassion without any uh, cause to look at responsibility for, for conduct. On the other hand, people are treating it like we have some sort of a military come terrorist mastermind coming back onto our shores that's a major threat to us all, which I certainly don't believe myself. Okay. So I, I think the, the key thing here is that it's handled appropriately, that there's a mix of compassion, practicality, and we remember that there's a small child who's an innocent party. Well, I was going to come to you, Fergus, on that because um, one of the stories was in the Mail on Sunday saying that the parents of Lisa Smith could, now they're not saying are, uh, parents of Lisa could face custody fight for their granddaughter. And they also point out in this article, I think it was in this one, that um, the father of the child, who I understand is now dead, that his parents have been inquiring about the child. In other words, the other grandparents. There's a child at the middle of all of this. What do you do? Well, I think what you do is you try to take the best interest of the child into account. And that's the duty of the agencies that will be responsible here. We, we don't know yet what's going to happen to her. Let's assume she's going to be arrested. Let's assume she's going to be detained in some fashion while an investigation is ongoing and interviews and so on. In those situations, generally speaking, um, a foster care arrangement is necessary and it is the duty of the authorities to, to put an arrangement together. Grandparents, and this is just a bold statement, grandparents yeah. don't have rights in these matters. Yeah, um, I know I've often heard grandparents complain no, about and, the rights and, they and, don't you know, have. And as a grandparent, you know, I, I get that. I get that. They, but under the law of the land as it stands, they don't have rights. It is the responsibility of the state um, to find an appropriate, safe, secure, stable place for that child to be. Um, and the, the most likely uh, of those arrangements is with a foster family. Um, is uh, it, I my, would have thought, actually, not being knowledgeable on this subject, I would have thought that the natural place for the child to go would have been to grandparents. Well, the first natural place, the best place for the child to be is with his mother. Yeah. Um, uh, in, in these circumstances, that's not possible. Uh, a foster arrangement involving grandparents is a very, very common one. Depends on the willingness of everybody involved and, right. and, and you know, assessments being made and uh, and all that kind of thing. Um the key thing, though, is that the safety and well-being of the child and whatever works best is, I, I hope, what the, the uh, two slab I am, yeah. imagine would be charged Would it ever be likely that if somebody, if the woman were in custody as mother, that the child could go with her? Yes. I, it, it has happened. Um, it isn't all that uh, usual. I, I remember visiting Dokus, uh, the women's prison, a couple of years yes, ago. Yes, yeah. Uh, there were, I think, at that time, two children uh, staying with their, with their mothers and there were two cells that were made up to enable that to happen. Yeah. With, you know, all the equipment necessary and, and so on. But it's not considered, I think, necessarily in the best long-term interest of a child right. to, to be spending time in incarceration. Right. Um, especially when they're not 
you know, themselves involved in any of course. You know, activity or yeah. investigation or anything of that kind. Right. Could I just throw in there that uh, in, in, it, this is not a, a classic kind of ordinary criminal situation and that there are, that when I said yes there, I wasn't just talking about, I think in, in the Doka Centre that there was has been provision made at different times. Uh, Certainly for pregnant women, as yeah, I recall. Indeed. And, yeah. young, and new mothers and young mothers. Yeah. And, yes. and to, to add to that, um, in Africa, in uh, Nigeria some years ago, I was involved in a, an EU-funded a counter-extremism project and part of that was de-radicalisation and we visited people in Abuja prison and now most of them were male but there were a certain amount of females who were allowed to have their children with them. It was a very benign type of system because at the heart of de-radicalisation is a sort of a restoration of humanity within the people who have been caught up in these inhumane type regimes. Right. And we have to kind of combine the concept of And the child is often central to that. Exactly. central to that. And, and one of the key things that found was that with mothers who had been caught up in that, having their children with them as they took part in the de-radicalisation programme, they started to look at things differently faster. If you took their children away from them and kept them away from them, they were, uh, uh, it reinforced the fact that they were martyrs to a cause. Right. And they kept seeing things in one-dimensional political terms rather than from a humane perspective. Uh, so a quicker way... That seems logical, doesn't it? Absolutely. So yeah. I mean, in, in, in Lisa Smith's case, if she was serving a period of incarceration in this jurisdiction in particular I would see no reason why she wouldn't be able to have her child with her and she's at an age where she could get the appropriate opportunities to be you know, looked after, educated whatever else without uh, it it impinging on her development Yeah, yeah It is a tricky one, it really is a tricky one People are very divided on this Some people are very cross because they say she never apologised and uh, I mean she was raising issues about that, there were two sides to the story about the Azidi women Um, Sometimes there aren't two sides to a fact if uh, gang rape has been gone continuous or serial rape has been going on But anyway Just just on that point Marion Personally speaking I believe she was wrong and I think we have to keep it what she did and it was, it was she should uh, suffer the appropriate punishment the appropriate punishment she you know and, and this is the thing even those who made the coffee in Auschwitz were culpable in some shape or form but the other side to it is a period of incarceration is I would argue nearly necessary for everybody's safety it allows the, con- the country calm down it allows people who are full of ire and there, there is a large amount of them uh, you know calm down a little bit. If she is walking the streets, I would fear for not just her safety, her daughter's safety, but the safety of her, her cohort, her friends, her family. Right. Because there is such a level of ire. And the state needs to take that into account. Okay. Listen, we will leave that there. Funnily enough, we never got to the most extraordinary uh, stories that were in the papers today about um, Sean Quinn complaining to the Vatican about a priest and also about John Mooney's interview with a man uh, who claims to be involved in the intimidation campaigns uh, against uh, that's going on up there that we've all been so aware of? Not since 2014. Uh, pardon? The man said he hasn't been involved since 2014. 2014, that's right. And he also said there was no paymaster involved. So, I mean, that's very interesting and that story will develop and develop. Man, it's. it's de- Full of tripwires for people blaming people yeah. and people taking them. We'll leave it there for the moment and we'll take a break. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio.